Good morning, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church. On behalf of your brothers and sisters in Christ, known as Leonardtown Baptist Church, I want to bring you greetings of grace and peace in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a joy to be back here with you this morning. This morning, I'd like to speak with you about the purpose of Christ's church. Why are we here? Why does God place his church in the world even as we are commanded not to be part of it? After all, God could theoretically choose to tell people about Jesus directly. In fact, there are reports all over the Muslim world that God is doing just that in visions and dreams that he is giving different individuals. Why not just pluck each Christian out of the world the moment they put their faith in Christ? Why are we here? Please join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning as we turn to your word, we ask that you would speak to us through it. Lord, where we need conviction, where we need challenging, Lord, we pray that you would speak openly and boldly to us within our spirits. Lord, where we need comfort, where we need assurance, we also seek that from you. Lord, together may we see in, your, in the words of your Son a commissioning to be salt and light in the midst of the world in which we live. Lord, may we do that for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm sure most of you don't need to know the significance of the date, March 20th, 2018. The shooting at Great Mills High School was a life-ending event for two of our community's young people and a life-changing event for many of us. This is especially true for the young man who was wounded for, and for the families of those who were involved. On such occasions, people often remember where they were when an event takes place or when they hear the news. Personally, I'll never forget sitting down to breakfast at my dining room table that morning, just before everything was taking place. I was just finishing eating and I was reading my Bible when I began to hear the sirens. Just a few at first, but then they kept coming and they kept screaming. For over a half hour, they kept coming. It didn't take long to realize that something serious was going on. And I began to pray as I went online, as we all do in times of crisis, right? to find a site that was streaming the local emergency services radio feed. I, I had to know what was going on, and my concerns were heightened as that site's traffic was quickly overwhelming its ability to send that stream. I couldn't tap into it. Then I spotted it. Below the link to listen to the radio feed, there was a text description of what the police and the EMS were responding to, an active shooter incident at Great Mills High School. I think my exact words were no, no, no. I live about two miles from the school. My daughter graduated from there. Like many of you, I have friends, fellow church members, and others who I know at the school, so immediately I began to pray for them and wonder about their safety. Now, it did not take long for the networks of pastors and youth leaders from various churches in our area to begin communicating. 
And this helped to verify people's status and facilitate planning a response from the churches in our area. And after the basic facts of what had taken place were known and the status of various individuals was known, I began to realize what it must be like for other communities that have gone through similar situations. Now please hear me. Every human life is precious from conception to death. One life lost is too many. But to be honest, I did begin to think about what it would be like to live in a community where the loss of life was even greater. March 20th was one of those days when the desperate state of our world was all too clear. It seems beyond belief that human beings would still need evidence of their depravity and hopelessness apart from Christ, but that evidence continues to mount. We live in a fallen world. Our world has many desperate needs, but this morning I would like to call our attention to three of them. The first is hope. Hope is a powerful thing. With hope, a human being can endure unspeakable evil and overwhelming hardship. As you, as you recently studied in Romans chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, Paul writes, Through him, that is Christ, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If God offers such powerful, wonderful hope in Christ, then what is the problem? Hopelessness. It pervades our Western culture. The promises made to us by this world are continually broken and consistently disappoint. This is in spite of unprecedented comfort and convenience achieved by this culture in our time. Think about it. Never has humanity had more means to connect to one another. Yet never have we ever, never have we felt more alone and disconnected. We have amassed more knowledge than perhaps the world has ever known in all previous generations. Yet in a time of moral relativism, fake news, and statistics that seemingly bend to support any argument, truth has never seemed so elusive or such an impossible dream. Even as we make incredible medical advances and overcome diseases and conditions that would have been death sentences just a few decades ago, humanity's self-destructive tendencies threaten to overwhelm us as we battle opioid addiction, abortion, euthanasia, and superbugs immune to the very drugs that we once used to fight them. Sadly, I could go on. As a result of this hopelessness, our society is increasingly characterized by rising anxiety, increasing depression, and a greater reliance on medications to combat them. Tragically, these conditions seem to be contributing to a sharp increase in suicides as well. I don't want to belabor this, but if that is something you are struggling with, let me just encourage you to get help. Speak up. Reach out to someone around you that you trust. 
In my life, I have been both the person who gave that help, I have also been the person who needed it. And so I would just encourage you to reach out to others if that is you. Perhaps most disturbing is how the church, at least in the Western world, seems to be mired with everyone else. Instead of meeting the world's need for hope by pointing others to Christ, too many in the church have lapsed into a functional atheism. Many of us have forgotten who we are and why we are here. We live as though there is no God and no hope to be found in Christ. Is it any wonder then that a world desperate for hope is is abandoning or ignoring a church unwilling to offer the hope that is only found in Christ? The second need the world has is fear. I know that sounds strange, but hear me out. This winter, I was given an amazing gift from the church I serve. I was able to take a sabbatical and put the time to use completing classes towards my master's degree. It also meant that I was able to stand down from my responsibilities as associate pastor for that time. And over those months, I did not attend worship services at Leonardtown Baptist. I was able to visit several different churches, including Redeeming Grace back in February. And since I was disconnected from my church, family, and ministry responsibilities, during those months, it gave me the opportunity to tune more clearly to the world outside the church. And one of the things that stood out was the growing absence of the fear of the Lord. As we have just seen, our world's hopelessness involves struggles with a variety of challenges that could collectively be characterized as fear, but the true nature of that problem is not that we experience fear, it's what we fear and how. Two of my courses were in the area of biblical counseling, which is the concentration associated with the degree I'm pursuing. A book that I found extremely helpful and I would certainly highly recommend is a book called When People Are Big and God is Small by Edward Welch. According to Welch, humanity has a long history struggling with fear, just not the right kind. Quote, since there is no room in our hearts to worship both God and people, whenever people are big, God is not. Therefore, the first task in escaping the snare of the fear of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious and not other people. How often has the fear of anything but God driven you to say hurtful words, to make reckless or self-destructive decisions, or to follow others down the wrong path just to fit in? By the way, that's not just a teen issue. That is a lifelong issue. Fear of people robs us of peace, hope, and sometimes our lives. Conversely, fear of the Lord puts everything in its proper place. To quote Welch again, the person who fears God will fear nothing else. This is the secret of David versus Goliath, of Daniel and those three Hebrew men in the fire, of Stephen martyred at the feet of Saul, and countless others who counted the cost and found that they gained their lives by losing them for the sake of Christ. The gospel calls us to a healthy fear, fear of the Lord, so that all other fear may be banished from our lives. Finally, before we turn to our text, I would suggest that even with so many needs in the world, 
the greatest among those needs is surely for the world to have in its midst some living epistles, some salty ambassadors serving as gospel lights for those mired in darkness. This requires something that the world desperately needs, authenticity. What great damage is done to the gospel witness of Christ's church when we fail to be authentic, particularly in two ways, hypocrisy and by denying our own ongoing battle with sin. Hypocrisy involves bearing a false witness. This also happens whenever Christians fail to even care that their walk doesn't match their talk. To be clear, no one's walk perfectly matches their talk this side of heaven. But aligning the two as closely as possible should drive our pursuit for holiness. Speaking of being real, the other way Christians fail to be authentic is when we deny our own ongoing battle with sin. When we do this, we rob God of glory and we make a fool of Christ. After all, if Christians have it all figured out and we have it all together, then why do we need a savior to die on the cross for us? There is such a thing as being too real, of course. Perhaps you've come across Christians who are so real, you wonder if they're believers. In other words, they're always struggling with sin, so much to the point that no victory is ever achieved, as just was mentioned earlier. Sometimes we need to see progress, we need to see someone winning battles every now and then, even if we are continually fighting the war. Unfortunately, churches can sometimes be the last place that someone could be real or transparent. We preoccupy ourselves with fear over what others may think instead of fearing the God who calls us to confession and accountability. Quite honestly, I believe that is what the Lord is confronting our own Southern Baptist Convention with these days. For far too long, we have been so caught up with appearances and having our heads right that we have neglected our hearts. And the result being revealed now in headline after headline is that it is difficult to lead others where we have not gone ourselves. The world needs the church to be authentic, not cool, not trendy or hip. It need it needs Christians willing to point others to the hope that we have in Christ, willing to call others to fear the Lord in order to find peace, and willing to be honest about their own faults and failures so that their witness offers a way out that others can follow. With this in mind, please join me in turning our attention to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 16. I don't recall if you still keep this tradition or not from previously, but would you please join me in standing as I read from these verses for us. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, 
let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. As Jesus conducted his earthly ministry, he taught his followers about the mission he was giving them. It is the same mission which has been handed down to us. Why are we here? Why is the church here? Why is Redeeming Grace Baptist Church here? To be disciples of Christ, to be disciples of Christ, and to make disciples of Christ. This morning we we will see that Jesus prepared us to be people of hope that leads others to life. People of a right fear that leads to peace and an authenticity that glorifies our Heavenly Father. To put our passage into context, the Gospel of Matthew was written by the former tax collector, also known as Levi, somewhere in the late 60s to 70s AD, or if you roll this way, CE. I'm an AD guy. His audience seems to have been Jewish Christians with the express purpose of showing Jesus to be the new and greater Moses and the new and greater David. Man, we are tracking here today, Brother Stephen. In the first few chapters of Matthew's gospel, he firmly establishes Jesus' lineage to David and Abraham. And this would have been very important to a Jewish believer. By the time Matthew gets to chapter 5, the human heritage and divine identity of Christ have been firmly established. Jesus is the promised king, and here in this chapter, he goes about teaching the subjects of his kingdom how to live as his followers. Jesus knows what the world's needs are, and here we see him prepare us to be the kind of representatives our king desires to have in this world. We learn why we are here. In Matthew 5, 13 through 16, before embarking on the body of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explained in two metaphors the impact that a truly righteous person will have on his or her world. The entire sermon, including the Beatitudes before and the many teachings after, show us how to live as salt and light in the world, as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. Please note that both verses in verses 14, excuse me, 13 and 14, Jesus used the emphatic you. He is telling this telling us that this is what a believer already is, not something we become. So what are you? Well, first, you are salt. In the ancient world, one of salt's key uses was to preserve food from decay. If you go back through history, you will find what happens to civilizations that devalue and even destroy essential components of a thriving human society, such as the family or human life. Look at how societies have treated the weakest and most vulnerable among them, such as Christian, or excuse me, such as children. Left to its own devices, the world around us would have self-destructed long ago. The church is called to incarnate the gospel. We cannot do that quite like Christ did, but we can put flesh and bones on what it means to live by faith in Christ and to be transformed day by day into his likeness. We don't want to see what happens to a human society when marriage is no longer sacred and honored. 
So the church, that's you and I, are called to protect and invest in our marriages so that the watching world sees that not everyone is divorcing or having affairs or simply living together. We don't want to know what it's like for sexuality to be truly, quote, liberated and uninhibited. We are told that we do, but we really don't. So the church is called to pursue purity and to demonstrate the healing power of God's grace when we fail. The second function of salt is to add flavor or interest. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. To be direct, I think Paul is telling us that we should spend less time defending questionable political figures and celebrities who appear to be on our side for the moment, and more time showing the world an example of how civility and respect contribute to the well-being of a society. Jesus' followers are to be like salt in that we should create a thirst for more information, a.k.a. living water. When, when we see someone who possesses superior qualities in, in a specific area, they're, they're at the next level, right, from where we want to go. We often seek out that very person. We try to find out why are they different? What's gotten them ahead of me? So are you different? Perhaps I should rephrase. Are you different in an attractive way? Would anyone notice Anything positive about your family life, your marriage, your integrity and values? Are they any different than anyone else's? In verse 13, Jesus warns us, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Technically, it is impossible for salt to become flavorless. What Jesus is speaking about here is the common problem in the ancient world of salt being mixed with various impure substances and therefore becoming worthless as a preservative. If salt simply blends in or loses its distinctiveness, then it has lost its saltiness and it has become worthless exactly as Jesus says. Church, we are called to be set apart, not in the sense of rising above others or withdrawing away to our little ghetto or bunker, but in the sense of drawing attention to God by the clear difference between the Jesus in us and the void in them. Speaking of making a clear distinction, in verse 14, Jesus says that his church is to be the light of the world. The function of light is to make reality or truth visible, thereby giving direction, giving guidance. Light is a common theme throughout the Bible. Any believer who fails to function as light, is going against his nature as God's new creation. The believer has no light inherent in ourselves. The believer's light is a reflected light. Think of the moon, that's the usual illustration of this. Believers are to make certain that nothing comes between us and the source of our light. Also notice in verses 14 and 15 that both a city and a lamp fulfill their function by being elevated so that their light can be seen by many people 
over a broad area. The city is on a hill. The lamp is on a stand high above. As we will see in a moment, the light represents our good works, which must be done with such integrity that all who see have no choice but to credit our Father in heaven. The Christian's life and influence is to be visible and obvious, not secret or hidden. In other words, the church is here in the world to shine. Not long ago at LBC, at Leonardtown, we received a disturbing piece of mail at the church. You might wonder what that was. It was a packet of information from Christian scientists, a cult, to be very clear. It was a packet of information about their disaster relief efforts and how we were invited to join them in doing good things. Now, there are plenty of counterfeits in the world today as Satan desperately tries to obscure the light of the gospel. And there are plenty of nice people doing good things in the world today. But what the world needs is for the church and the Christians who make up the church to be explicit so that as as Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, we may always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And yet, here's the key, and yet to do it with gentleness and respect. They should know what makes your life different, what makes your home different, what makes your approach and presence in the workplace different. You should be clearly and explicitly pointing that back to Christ. It's not just because you're a nice person. It's because you're being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Some people might see a contradiction between the instruction here to let let your light shine before men and what Matthew records later in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, to be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, not to be seen by them. However, there's a great difference between these two passages. That difference has to do with who is glorified by the good works. In one case, attention is drawn to God. In the other, attention is drawn to self. It's the Christian's calling to live in such a way as to make God visible in a world that is blind to him. In light of the countercultural perspectives taught in the Beatitudes, it would be easy to assume that Jesus is calling his followers to separate, to pull back. But here Jesus proclaims precisely the opposite. Christians must permeate society as agents of redemption. The church cannot be salt or light from a distance. Notice that it is the earth that needs the salt, that it is the world that needs the light, not the kingdom of heaven. Why are we here? Why is the church still upon the earth? It's because we do not have the kingdom of, excuse me, it's because the kingdom servant did not have a function to perform on earth according to God's plan. He might as well go straight to heaven upon conversion. If God doesn't have a purpose for us here, we certainly could just go straight to heaven. But the reality is that the earth needs the influence of Christ's church in these days. Part of the church's task on earth is to live according to its new nature, alive, purposeful, hopeful, and joyful. Christians should be living in such a way that others will pause and consider what's different about them. The difference, 
has a purpose. Now, I'm grateful to several pastors and church leaders who have, in, at least in recent years, called the church's attention to how we are called as the church to pursue something called human flourishing. Part of our function as salt and light is to be a blessing to our neighbors, to our communities, so that as we are that blessing, as we are that influence, that godly influence, that we not only preserve humanity as, as God's plan unfolds for our history and as his, his sovereign plan unfolds for salvation, but also that we might glorify our Heavenly Father through what we're doing. Both metaphors of salt and light raise important questions about Christian involvement in society regarding all forms of separatism or withdrawal. We're not called to control power structures. Neither are we promised that we can Christianize the legislation and values of the world. But we must remain active, preservative agents, sometimes even irritants, in calling the world to heed God's standards. I know all of your elders relatively well, so I'm pretty sure I can say this. I know you're in the midst of a campaign, right, to raise the money to build a facility. But I'm pretty sure they're not calling you to build a bunker. I'm pretty sure they're calling you to build an embassy. So be mindful of that. I'm sure you are as you pursue that goal of having your own facility. You remember the world's desperate needs? Christ is the answer to those needs. And we are the means that he has chosen to make himself known. We are called to point others to the hope God offers that, to the world in Christ. We are called to model fear that leads to peace. And we are called to boldly represent the kingdom of heaven as its ambassadors until we are recalled. I want to briefly make another recommendation of a book to you. This was a recommendation given to me by uh, Lisa Calicott. Is Lisa in the room? I lost track of her. Anyway, there she is. Lisa, a couple of years ago, we were um, heading off to Moldova for a missions trip, and she said, I've, I've been reading this amazing book. It's called Tactics. It's by this guy named Greg Kokel. Uh, that's K-O-U-K-L, by the way. Amazing book. I would definitely encourage you to pick one up and read that because it equips us to function precisely as that, as ambassadors, equipped to turn every conversation into a gospel conversation and to know how to kind of handle those, those situations. That's what we're called to be. Jesus gives us two metaphors, but in verse 16, he calls us to our common purpose, God's glory. In verse 16, he says that his church, in the same way, is to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. No one should waste light. Maybe a few of you teenagers have heard that from your parents. Turn the lights off. We don't want to waste light or salt for that matter. We are called to put our lives to use for God's glory. To return to Edward Welch's book, When People Are Big and God is Small, he writes there, the Bible, rightly understood, asks the question, why are you so concerned about yourself? Furthermore, it indicates that our culture's proposed cure 
increased self-love is actually the disease. If we fail to recognize the reality and depth of our sin problem, God will become less important and people will become more important. As we are obedient to our King and Savior to be salt and light, the world finds its hope, its peace, and its truth in Him. This is why we are here. We are called to catch other people's attention, not for ourselves, but for the one they need most. We are called here for God's glory. By the way, this is the first time that Matthew calls God Father. It is a wonderful new emphasis on personal intimacy for the believer. Now Matthew went on to use that word 45 more times, but it's also a great picture of what it means to glorify our Heavenly Father by living for Him openly before others. Some of you know my daughter, Megan. She wasn't feeling well or she would be here with me this morning. One of the blessings of of fatherhood often is when you lose your identity. In many circles around the community, I'm, I'm, I'm nobody. I'm just, oh, that's Megan's father. And I am perfectly okay with that. God, in his mercy and in spite of her parents, uh, has brought her up to be uh, what I know to be a wonderful, godly young woman. And, by the way, not perfect. Sinner as the day is long. But I am quite happy to be known as Megan Acker's father. That's what Jesus is talking about here. As people interact with you and I, and they learn that we are Christians, God should just kind of receive that glory, that sense of, yeah, that's that's my son, that's my daughter. Look at how they're living their lives. Look at how they're loving others. Look at how they are demonstrating hope and peace and truth to the world around it that needs those things so desperately. Oh, that glorifies me, God says. That, That makes me so glad, so proud to be known as their heavenly father. So why are we here? We are here to remember who we are. This will sound familiar to some of you. We are here to remember who we are and who we serve. Remembering why we are here. To bring hope, peace, and truth to the world that needs it through Christ. And as we do so, to glorify our Heavenly Father until he calls us home. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, today it is our joy to know you. But Lord, many in our world do not know you. And so I ask, Lord, as we conclude our time together, that you would speak to us, that you would stir us up within our spirits from your spirit, that you would draw us to perhaps conclusions and and convictions where perhaps we need to, in our own lives, pursue the hope, peace, and truth we have in Christ so that we can more brightly, more boldly reflect who Jesus is to the watching world around us so that this desperate world that needs you so much will find you in us. Lord, may you continue to transform each of us into the likeness of your Son.
And Heavenly Father, may your richest, richest blessings continue to pour out upon Redeeming Grace Baptist Church. Lord, may they not only increase in number, but may they grow in depth and grow in the likeness of your Son even more. Lord, we thank you for this truth that your Son has brought us through your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.